Amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and grab a seat. My name is Mike. It is wonderful to be with you today. Uh, absolutely love being on the faith journey with, with you, Overlake. It's so fun. Uh, just uh, by, just let's get it out of the way. How many in, in the house, how many of you are Carolina Panther fans? Anybody? I see that hand. God bless you. I see that hand. I see that hand. All right. How many are Broncos fans? Any Broncos? Yeah. How many Seattle Seahawks fans? Yeah, me too. Uh, here's the deal. I just want to just get it out of the way. As a Seahawks fan, I am so excited about next year. I cannot even wait. So, yeah, today, Super Bowl, it's not that super for me, but... Uh, but I hope, I hope you have a good time. hope you're with friends. Hope, hope it's a good thing. Um, why don't you take your notes out of your handout? And we are wrapping a series up today called Us For Them. Really, really simple, this concept. It's not us or them because us or them devolves rather quickly into us over them where we prioritize our needs and our wants and we, we sort of make sure that, that we're taken care of, at, often at the expense of them. And, and when you're in that place, it devolves really quickly into the us versus them. And the view that there's a zero-sum game and we either win or they win and so we're gonna make sure that we win and, and there's conflict and there's antagonism. And as you look at the scripture and you look at the person of Jesus, you see that's just the opposite of what he models. Just the opposite of what he teaches. No, Jesus is the one who teaches us, us for them. And, and we started this series a couple of weeks ago. We looked at a passage of scripture in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 58, where God was speaking really, really clearly through his prophet Isaiah to his people. And what God was saying was, this is my heart, that you would be for those in need, that you would be for those who are hungry, you would be for those who are oppressed, that that is how you connect with my heart when you are for them. And I put this verse on, on your outline. This is from Isaiah 58, verse 10. God says, if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. So, so God is really clearly identifying this aspect of being for those in need, for the oppressed, for the hungry. That's really connecting with his heart. But it's not just in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, last week we talked about the last sermon Jesus ever preached. And in this sermon that Jesus, the very last sermon that he ever, the last message he ever gave before the crucifixion, he said this, that when you feed the hungry and when you clothe those without clothing and when you visit the sick or you care for those in prison, anytime you do something for the oppressed or those in need, you are doing it to me. He's saying, I want you to see that, that this is so clear. It's the heart of God and I receive it as a direct ministry to me when you care for them. So, so that's kind of what we've been going after. And again, it's a, it's a singular thread, goes all the way through the scripture. Today we're going to take a look at one passage of scripture, maybe the most well-known passage of scripture in the entire world. So we'll, we'll see. I, I, I'm, I'm sure that many, if not all of you, are somewhat familiar with what we're going to talk about today. But let's just jump right into it. This is found in Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke 10. It'll be on your notes. It'll be on the screen as well. 
there's a discussion going on. Jesus is in the midst of a crowd of people, and in the midst of this discussion, there's a man who stands up, an expert in religious law, a lawyer, but, but specifically trained in religious law, and he wants to test Jesus. This is what he says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you circle the words eternal life, in the New Testament, it's a, it's, it's a, there's a very full concept here. So it doesn't just mean life forever and ever. It has to do with the quality of life. So there's an, a specific abundance that's referenced, a, a fullness of life, both in this lifetime and in the lifetime to come. There's this richness, this abundance, and that's what that phrase eternal life designates. And, and it's, it's, it's heavy motivation, not just for this guy, for the Jewish community in general. For, for so many of us, there's some anxiety, there's angst around when will I know I'm in? When can I rest assured? When will I know that I'm, I'm good with God, that I'm golden, that I'm, that I'm living this life with him now and I'll be with him when this life is over? And it's such a huge motivation. You think that Jesus would jump right in and answer the question, but he doesn't. Jesus answers the question with a question, which Jesus often does for two reasons. Number one, because he's a great teacher. And he knows that the very best way to teach is to lead students to a place where they discover the truth themselves. That's why he's the, the best teacher the world's ever seen. And we are still, you know, we, we still are familiar with his teaching now 2,000 years later. But the second reason he does it is because, what? He knows what this man is doing. This man is trying to test Jesus. So Jesus decides, well, I'm going to test you right back. Okay, so this is what's happening. What's written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So you see what Jesus does. He says, what's written in the law, which is a pretty straightforward question to ask this expert in the law, but then the next question, how do you read it? It's a little more interpretive. What do you say the most important commandments in Scripture are? What do, what do you say are, are the bedrock commandments in the Bible? And this man answers. He answers from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and following. This is the Shema. The Israelites would have quoted this daily. And then Leviticus 19, 18. So two commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, these are, these are huge commandments in Scripture. Jesus identifies them as the greatest commandments. And if you're familiar with Overlake Christian Church, you need to know that we have three purposes that we go after. The first is love God. The second is love people. And the third is serve the world. The first two purposes come directly from these commandments. That we want to be a church that takes seriously and wrestles seriously with this call to love God and love people. So these are the purposes of God. Jesus says, do this and you will live. In other words, he says to the, the lawyer, you got the right answer, do it. It's, it, this, is a, this is a thing, you don't just need to know the commandments, you need to be doing them. Now here's a question. Is this lawyer 
fulfilling the commandments perfectly? Is he loving God with all of his potential and all of his intensity? Is he loving his neighbor as himself? Before you answer, are you? Am I? Has anyone ever? You see, the, the idea is this is a, an incredibly high and holy challenge, these commandments. That we would love God with all of our faculty and all of our ability and all of our potential. And that we would love him most and best all the time. And that we would always love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Not just treat our neighbor as we want to be treated, but actually love our neighbor as we love ourselves. How do we love ourselves? We love ourselves real good. Always. And so the, the challenge is, and, and even if you want to, friends, as I want to, even if you want to fulfill these commandments, isn't it important for us to recognize that even if we want to and we try the best way we know how, we consistently fall short of loving God with everything all the time and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And part of what Jesus is trying to get this guy to realize is, yeah, these are the two commandments, real easy to say, real easy to recite, really hard to put into practice. And he wants us to come to the same conclusion that, yeah, these are the commandments and, and we understand the commandments. We also understand that we fail at keeping the commandments. Because the challenge, we talked about this a little bit last week, the challenge is this, that, that we cannot, by our own good works, by our own will, by our own merit, we cannot earn salvation on our own. See, Scripture says this, this is how we receive salvation, Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's the problem. If you think you can earn salvation, you'll never call on the name of the Lord. And so Jesus is trying to get this man, he's trying to get us to realize that we need his help. That we need to call out to him. That we cannot earn salvation. He's already earned it for us. He wants to give it to us as a gift. So that's where he's trying to get this guy, part of what he's trying to get this guy to realize. And and, and so Jesus, when he says, do this and you will live, he knows that this man has not been doing this. He knows this man has been falling short on these two commandments. And this man knows that Jesus knows that he's been falling short on these two commandments. And the reason why we know that he knows, that Jesus knows, is that he tries to justify himself. Look what the scripture says. It says, but he wanted to justify himself. Here's the deal. If you're trying to justify yourself to Jesus, that's a really tough place to be, right? Because he knows, okay? It says, so he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, notice what he does here. He says, there's two commandments, and I have this sneaking suspicion that Jesus knows I don't fulfill either of them. But he jumps right over the love God perfectly commandment. In other words, he's assuming in the context of this discussion that he does love God perfectly. God and I are just fine. I'm golden with God. And you can kind of sense here, he's also saying, and my neighbors, oh, we're good too. That, that I love them well. They love, they love me just like I love me. Like we are good, my neighbors. Unless, of course, Jesus, you have a different definition of neighbor. 
So who is my neighbor, he's asking. Is it, is it just the guy next door to me? Is it just the four houses around me? Is it just my tribe? Who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus knew this man was testing him. He knew that this man wasn't fulfilling the commandments perfectly. He, he knew that this was an opportunity where he could rebuke the man or just dismiss him. But Jesus doesn't. He answers him graciously. And I'm so glad he did. Because in Jesus' answer... He gives us a story, a parable, literally that has gone around the world, that everyone, people who don't know anything about Jesus, they don't know anything about the Bible, people know this story. It's called the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan. Jesus doesn't call it the Good Samaritan. He doesn't say, now gather around, let me tell you a story about the Good Samaritan, because if he did, all his listeners would leave right then. Because at the time, the Jewish community they, they hated the Samaritan community and vice versa. There was antagonism. There was violence. This was definitely an us versus them kind of a situation. And yet Jesus is going to tell this story and it's going to completely undo so much of this lawyer, this, this expert in the law's uh, expectations. So let's just jump into it. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So, just real quickly, it says he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. If you're familiar with the geography, uh, Jerusalem's up in elevation. It's up sort of in the mountains there. And then you go down, down. Jericho is actually below sea level. So you're descending quite a bit. And in this day, the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, it was windy. There were a lot of twists and turns as the road descended. It's, it's wilderness. There's not a lot going on out there. No communities between Jerusalem and uh, Jericho. And then all kinds of narrow canyons. And so what would happen is robbers, bandits would hide out into, in those narrow canyons. When they saw a vulnerable traveler, often they would attack. It was a very dangerous road. It was known for this kind of violence. Uh, you would never want to be traveling alone on this road, which is ironic because in this story, Jesus has four people traveling alone on this road. And I, it just brings to mind this, and you might know this, that at Overlake 2016, we're, this is the year of connection. Our, our mantra is connection is everything. We we're talking all kinds of ways about how we do life in community. We're trying to challenge Overlakers to be in community. We were thinking about what would be a good mantra for this year, and one of the ideas we had was, if you travel alone, you will be jumped and mugged and beaten and left on the side of the road by Jericho, so get into a life group. <laughs> but it was a little cumbersome, so we left it alone. Next verse, verse 31, says, A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So a Levite is like a priest's assistant, and a priest is like a Levite's boss, and, and they were both compelled by the law to stop and give aid to a person in need. And so when Jesus is telling the story, there's an assumption from his listeners that, oh, these would be the two people that for sure would stop to help. 
It would be like maybe in our context today if I told the story of a paramedic that was crossing this road and he saw this man beaten and wounded and just crosses by the other side of the street and leaves him there. And then maybe a hospital chaplain comes by 10 minutes later, sees the man, crosses by the street. You would say, ah, I would assume for sure those two people would help. But they don't. They just cross the street to avoid the problem. And it does bring up a personal question. The personal question is, where are you crossing the street to avoid a situation where someone's in need? Where is it that you're maneuvering your life away so that you can conveniently not be inconvenienced by the need that you've just avoided? How are you making sure that you're not inconvenienced by that? See, it, it, these stories Jesus tells, they always have a landing place. This is one of them. So, so the first guy, the priest, he ignores. Second guy, the Levite, he ignores. And then Jesus drops the bomb because you know who, who the third guy is. The third guy is the Samaritan. The third guy is the hero of this story and it, it, the, the one that the, the listeners cannot believe that Jesus is going to make the hero. Right? This is what Jesus says. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. A couple of things I want you to notice. If you look at that first line, the, the Samaritan's traveling on, comes to where the man was. He sees him, and then the next phrase, and took pity on him. You might want to underline that. He took pity on him. All three weeks, we've talked about how compassion is the first response of a Jesus follower. Compassion is the requirement. There are 10,000 positions you might hold. There are a thousand different ways you might proceed, but compassion is the requirement of a Jesus follower. We must see the need, we must care about the need. The Samaritan does. He sees the need, he cares, and it prompts him to take action. So, so kind of look, let's pick apart what action does this Samaritan take. You see that, that he stops immediately and he begins to treat the man's wounds. So he pours on wine. That wine would have been for antiseptic. It would have been a way to cleanse his wounds. Then he pours on oil. Oil would have been a way to soothe the man's wounds, right, to help him feel better, comfort. Then he says the Samaritan puts him on his donkey. So presumably now the Samaritan's walking. He's inconvenienced further. Not just to mention whatever schedule he was on, whatever he needed to get down to Jericho for, that, that agenda, that's been put aside. Because now he's going to care for this man. Puts him on his own donkey, leads him to an inn. And when he gets to the inn, what does the scripture say? How long does he personally tend this man? All night long. Personally, he's with him. He's making sure that he's cared for. He's making sure that he's doing okay. Kind of sits with him all night long. The next morning, he goes to the innkeeper, and he gives him two denarii. 
I was curious, how much care does two denarii buy in the first century? Most scholars believe that what this Samaritan did was pay for this man's care, food and board. He's able to stay in this inn for between one to two months in order to heal. That's called tangible care. That's practical compassion. And, and not only that, but, but the Samaritan says to the innkeeper, this man's under my protection. I'm the one who's kind of taken this man under my wing. So listen, whatever you need to do in order to take care of him, whatever he requires in order for his healing to be complete, you just do it. You, you just take that, that expense on, and when I come back, I'll, I'll get you back for that. I'm good for it. You put it on my tab because I'm going to care for this guy. And again, we're talking about he's, he's, he's crossing. There, there's ethnic boundaries here. There's cultural boundaries here. All kinds of prejudice built up regarding this. And yet the Samaritan says, I'm going to cross all those lines in order to care for this man, in order to be practical and compassionate for this guy. Now Jesus continues, and this is where the, sort of the punch is. Verse 36, Jesus concludes, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Was it the priest? Was it the Levite? Was it the Samaritan? And look what the expert says. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. Right? He, he, he learned the lesson. He doesn't really learn the lesson. The one who has mercy, that's the neighbor. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. Could you just circle that phrase? Go and do likewise. This story, by the way, this is a... It's not a just so you know story, it's a just so you do story. This is a go and do kind of a story. You notice the verbs that Jesus used. He talks about love God and love people. He says, do this and you will live. He talks about the good Samaritan. He says, go and do, right? There, there's an emphasis that Jesus is trying to get across. Is this is how you live when you're walking in the way of my salvation, this is what it looks like. In the 70s, there was an experiment that was done with seminary students. I read about it in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Just a little light reading that I do. In this, in this journal, it had researchers who wanted to conduct an experiment about social compassion, but they wanted to create tension. So they grabbed a bunch of, of seminary students who were majoring in ministry, and they gave them an assignment to come up with a message, a sermon on the Good Samaritan. Okay? And, and we're going to record your message on the Good Samaritan. The, the deal is you have to go across campus to the recording studio, and you're really on a timeline. You've got to make sure you get there at the exact right time. And, and unbeknownst to the students, on the pathway from their classroom to the recording studio, they had hired an actor. And they, they had hired him to, to play the part of a homeless man in need. And so he was, he, he was there right in the pathway as the seminary students were going to record a message on the Good Samaritan. The researchers were interested. 
after knowing all of this, after consuming all of this truth and being ready to expound a challenge on being a good Samaritan, how many of them would take the time to stop and actually go and do likewise? Unfortunately, the seminary students passed by one after the other. As the people went by, the actor became, uh, under sort of the researcher's instructions, became more obviously and more obviously in distress. Finally, he was like laying on the sidewalk, you know, convulsing. And a seminary student stepped over his body in order to go. And before you get too disgusted with those bad, baddie, baddie bads, just remember that you're on a schedule as well. Just remember, you've got, oh, important things to do. You've got to make sure that you finish that task and get to that place, and you've got to make that appointment and make that sales call, and you've got to get your kids to this soccer practice. And I know you're busy. I'm busy too. But you see, when Jesus says go and do likewise, he's saying, look, there's going to be an inconvenient factor. There's going to be, it's going to take a little time. It, it, it might mess up your day just a little bit. might put you out a little bit of money. This, this might inconvenience you. You might even put yourself in a place where you're slightly vulnerable in order to care for someone who's vulnerable. But that's how you go and do likewise because Jesus says, that's what I've done for you. This is the kind of care I have for you. This is how I want you to live. And Overlake, again, I want to challenge you because, because so many of us, this is the life we're trying to live. It's the life we want to be aware of. It's, it's the way our ministries are, are, are leading us and guiding us. So many of us are already living this. In fact, I want to give you a couple of local examples of how this might look. Um, Paige, why don't you come up? I want to hear, have you hear from Paige. She's an Overlaker, and, uh, and, and she's had an opportunity just recently to have this kind of a ministry. So would you please welcome Paige? Hello. Um, yeah, my name is Paige, and I'm thankful to be here. Thank you for letting me share. Um, I love the good Lord, and I love this church, and I love how Pastor Mike and his staff encourage us and challenge us to pray for opportunities to reach out um, to, our, to those in our community. And I was praying for the Lord to give me an opportunity, and he opened one up on a Wednesday afternoon. I was with my four-year-old daughter, and we needed to go to PCC in Redmond, but I had to get my son from school really soon, so we were trying to hurry. And as um, we got in there, got what we needed, and I probably told Lydia a couple times, you know, we gotta hurry, we gotta hurry. And as we were going out in the parking lot, this woman comes. Um, I, it appeared that she had gotten off of a bus. Um, she came from that direction. And she had a little piece of paper, like a post-it note. And she was saying, excuse me, excuse me, over and over. And, I could see she handed it to me, and it had all these numbers on it and the word Avondale, and then um, language that appeared to be Japanese, so I knew she, was, she needed help. Um, and so um, I'm very unfamiliar with the bus routes, and all I could do was uh, just think, okay, um, let's, let's go into this store, because um, we were so short on time, but there was just something about her. And I knew in my heart later that Jesus wanted me to help her, and that this was an answer to that prayer from earlier. So we went in, and an employee uh, in the produce oil, I handed him that little post-it note, and I said, can you help us? And 
he said, uh, sure, I know exactly what this is. This is 248 uh, Avondale, and he points out the door, and there's a bus stop way out there, and I could see it, but she, she couldn't. And um, I told him thank you, and um, we just couldn't leave her. So we, we took her all the way out there and walked about three-fourths of the way. And I pointed again, and she went, oh, okay. And she said thank you over and over and that her English wasn't good. And I thought she did beautifully. Um, she was way braver than I would have ever been. And um, I'm just thankful to have been there. I'm thankful that Jesus answered that prayer and gave me that opportunity. And I love how um, so often he teaches us in that same time when we help others. He taught me that he's God and he created time and he always creates the amount of time we need. And his peace flooded me that whole time. I, I didn't feel so rushed like I usually do. Um, and that uh, also just to pray for God to open our eyes because the opportunities are endless. Thank you. I, I love Paige's story because it's, it's very doable. It's right in the middle of crazy life, and, and it's a great example of just allowing yourself to be slightly inconvenienced to care for, for others. And it, Paige was with her daughter, so it was a great opportunity to model the kind of life that Jesus has modeled for us. And Paige, I, I just love your accent. Where is that from, Boston? Just kidding. I, I, yeah, it's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing. You know, um, another local example of a, a, a little bit of this, a couple of weeks ago, you might have read about this in the paper, th there's a consignment store in Redmond called Rags to Riches. Rags to Riches, this great consignment store, is actually uh, ranked one of the best consignment stores on the east side and kind of high-end uh, ladies' clothing and, and fancy dresses, work outfits, that kind of thing. Well, the reason why it was in the news a couple weeks ago is because a young man had come in. The store, Rags to Riches, is actually run by Leona and her son, Shane. Uh, delightful folks. Leona's originally from the Bahamas. And, and they own this store. And Anyway, a young man came in, wanted to sell them some dresses that they could then in turn sell. And, and they had a somewhat uh, pleasant interaction. And Leona bought the dresses, and the young man exited the store. And then Leona took them out of the bag and, and then noticed there was another bag that was connected to the first. And so she opened that second bag up. And in it was uh, a robe used by members of the KKK and a hood. Obvious insignia designated part of the Ku Klux Klan or whatever and, and a rope as well. And, and the intent of that gift given to her was crystal clear. If you're not familiar, the KKK has been a terrorist organization on American soil for over 150 years. They, 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 they trademark in terror. So it's, it's all about terror, communicating the most hateful sort of message that you can communicate. And, and, and so that's why it was in the news. And, and once we heard about it, Pastor Dan, at Overlake, he stopped by, just wanted to communicate care and love and community to Leona. Uh, Pastor Josh and I, we stopped by the next day. We wanted to bring a bouquet of friendship flowers and just spend an hour with Leona, talking with her. And, and all three of us, we, we wanted to communicate that, that our family is our, our biracial family and, and, 
and we're so pleased that she is a part of our community and that, that we want to stand with her. We want to extend a hand of friendship and, and support. And what's interesting is not just was that sort of the response of some of our pastors, but then uh, some of our elders and a, and a coalition here in the east side got together. And, and on Tuesday of this week, there was um, at City Hall, the mayor of Redmond and, and many overlakers were there. Actually, the house was kind of filled. Uh, news reporters were there. It was an opportunity to speak out against racism. And, and Leona was there, and her son Shane was there, and they spoke. Many other voices spoke about community, about these acts of racism, th this message of racism. It does not define us because we love you, and we are so glad that you're a part of our community. And, and Josh and I, we were there. Many others were there. But as we walked up, Leona saw us, and, and, and she rushed over. She gave us a big hug. And it was just so beautiful to see just the beginnings of friendship and and I was really, really glad that, um, that we had the opportunity to engage with Fiona. So here, here's what I thought. I, I was just one. And again, this is just my own heart. This is just me. This is not the Lord speaking. This is just me uh, from the book of Second Opinions, Mike Howerton. Um, <laughs> but but, but I, would I was just thinking that wouldn't it be great if, if maybe 50 or 60 of you stopped by Rags to Riches this week? And you just communicated your care. And you communicated your support. You communicated how, how glad you were that they are in this community together. Could, could we do that, do you think? Um, we, could, we could get together and do that. Because you see, what the enemy wants for evil, God can turn for good. And, and this is the way that he does that. Um, and by the way, if you, if you want some, some high-end clothing... Uh, I'm speaking to the ladies, of course, then th this would be a great, great, great way to support her. So that might be what it looks like locally. Again, it's just having your eyes open, looking for opportunities where, where you can step out, where you can speak out, where you can just reach out and care for somebody in need. Now I want you to hear uh, what this might look like uh, with our overseas ministries. Pastor Dan, would you come and share with us? Dan's going to share not only the story of, of how the Lord has stirred him, but some great opportunities that we have. Could you welcome him as he comes to share? Thank you. <clears throat> On my first trip to Africa over 12 years ago, I was completely ignorant about the worldwide problem of children living alone on the streets. I had no idea that every major city in the world, including Seattle, has children living on the streets, not only without a home, but without a family to care for their physical and developmental needs. Yes, I said Seattle. The latest count in Seattle identified over 1,000 children ages 13 to 23 living on the streets. They sleep under the bridges and the freeways in conditions you cannot imagine. My first encounter with street children on that trip to Kenya over a decade ago changed my life in profound ways that I'm still unpacking. It has not only shaped my heart, but shaped the, the trajectory of my ministry. I have a friend who calls us being gloriously ruined for the kingdom. My wife and I have spent much of our lives since that trip trying to learn about street children and understanding the best ways not only to serve them, but prevent them from going to the streets. Children end up on the streets for a variety of reasons. In Seattle, 25% of the street children have spent time in foster care and simply find the streets a better alternative than being bounced around from foster home to foster home every few months. 
22% identify as LGBTQ, many of whom have been rejected by their families and due to their sexual identity and find themselves homeless and alone. In the developing world, the leading causes of children living on the streets include the devastating impact of HIV AIDS, lack of food, physical and sexual abuse, neglect and abandonment. While the reasons may vary, the end result is the same, that children end up wind, wind up on the streets, tra rejected, traumatized, and alone, oftentimes using drugs or glue to numb the pain of empty stomachs and empty lives. On that first trip to Kenya, I had the privilege to meet some of the 1,300 children who lived on the streets of Katali, Kenya. These children were not only just a, no, no longer just a statistic to me. In fact, they not only stopped being a statistic, two of them actually became family when we eventually adopted Derek, who had lived on the streets since age four, and his little brother named Reggie. So helping street children is not just a cause that my wife and I are dedicated to. It is a deeply personal passion in our life's work. When I joined the Overlake staff six years ago, we immediately partnered with New Horizons Ministries, which is an incredible ministry to the street children in Seattle. In addition to serving the street youth of Seattle, they also operate a coffee shop that not only employs street kids, but it's used to fund their ministry. In fact, we are in the process of remodeling a room in the back of this church to house their coffee roaster so that in a joint project with the students of Eastside Academy, they can roast the beans for the coffee that they sell at the coffee shop. You can actually pick up some of the beans here at the Espresso after the service. So while we are partnering locally with New Horizons, we've also sought an international partner in order to have an impact globally. In Kenya, we identified a Christian ministry partner in the city of Kasumu named Agape that cared for street children. During those early days, we challenged them to evaluate their program, which had essentially morphed over the years into a, a traditional orphanage caring for over 150 street children with no clear plan for what to do with those children when they turned 18. We challenged them to embrace the local church to seek families for each of these children in their care. We began working with local pastors to change the stigma in the community that only viewed children as a nuisance. We began working on preventing children from coming to the streets by attempting to eliminate some of the causes. In the areas where most of the street children came from, we drilled over 70 wells to provide clean water to these areas. We provided agricultural training and distributed seeds. We taught parenting classes. We taught caregivers how to deal with the effects of trauma. We shared with them what we were doing at our church with the vulnerable children in our communities. We simply shared what we were doing in our church, not as experts, but as a fellow church struggling to find ways to care for those children that are in our community. And something amazing happened. They got it. Agape has revamped their program in Kasumu over the past few years and has been revolutionary in their approach to caring for street children. They now operate an incredibly effective program of reintegrating street children back into the communities where they came from. In the last three years, they have reintegrated over 900 street children back into their communities with extended family or other caregivers. Over 900 children. <laughs> over 900 children are now living in a family and no longer begging or stealing for food in, the li in their lives on the streets.
This is the result of an amazingly comprehensive program of preparation and follow-up to placing children and families. We pray for the day when Agape puts itself out of business because it is so effective. Their program works, and it has made a huge difference in Katali, in Kasumu, but we can't stop there. Just as we replicated Eastside Academy here at Overlake, it's time to replicate Agape in another city. I can now see how God has been preparing Derek and Reggie's hometown of Katali for this program ever, had, ever since I had my first encounter with street children there 12 years ago. So Overlake teams are busy laying the groundwork for replication, which is not an easy task, but we know it will happen with God's help. We're working in Katali with churches, government leaders, and other le local leaders to help them to make this program a reality in their city. It has to be their program, not ours. We pray that we can have the same kind of impact in Katali as we've had in Kasumu. Stop at the Serve the World desk if you'd like to learn more about some upcoming trips or if you'd like to get a copy of an award-winning documentary that talks about the life of a, a day in the life of a street child in Kenya. Thank you, Overlake, for all that you do to make this type of ministry possible. I invite each of you to allow your heart to be broken for these children. I pray that your lives will be as gloriously ruined as mine has been just for the privilege of having loved these children who the world has rejected. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Well, I want to I wrap up our time with a little challenge. And I don't know what you think about this guy, this, the Pope Francis. I, I find him quite interesting. I'm, I'm quite curious about him. And the way that he tends to view his ministry seems to be interesting and, and a way in which intrigues me as I see him maybe trying to model some of the things that Jesus taught and in unique ways, in ways that popes before him have not done. And what's interesting is uh, just a, f a week or so ago, he gave a message. It's, it's right at the beginning of a period called Lent for the Catholic Church. And in Lent, typically Catholics give up something in preparation for Easter and the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I was curious to see what it was that the Pope would challenge uh, folks to give up, you know. And, and often, I mean, I've had, I've had friends who, for Lent, give up things like chocolate or uh, television, things like that. And I was curious to see what the Pope would challenge his folks to give up. And I was really moved. He challenged them to give up indifference. He challenged people to give up apathy. And it's a challenge that I'm trying to bring. And it's a challenge that, that Jesus has brought. It's a challenge that we go all the way back to Isaiah 58. And we see that, that the, the heart of God, that, that God, as he's communicating to Isaiah, he says, is this the kind of fast you think I want? That you would just give up food for a day? God says, no, I want you. I, I don't care about the religious practices that you do. If it doesn't connect with the heart of the poor, if it doesn't connect with, with righting injustice, if it doesn't uh, connect with, with setting the oppressed free, if it doesn't uh, impact somebody else's life, then the religious practice, it, it does not matter. And it's so interesting that, that God says, that's not the kind of fast I want. And then here Francis is saying, 
why don't you give up indifference? I got a quote, I'll read it to you. Describing this phenomenon he calls the globalization of indifference, Francis writes that whenever our interior life becomes caught up in its own interests and concerns, there's no longer room for others, no place for the poor. God's voice is no longer heard, the quiet joy of his love no longer felt. The desire to do good fades. He continues, we end up being incapable of feeling compassion at the outcry of the poor, weeping for other people's pain and feeling a need to help them as though all this were someone else's responsibility and not our own. But when we fast from this indifference, we can begin to feast on love. Isn't that good? So the challenge overlay is that we would fast from indifference, but that we would feast on love. The challenge that I want to leave us with today is the challenge that Jesus brings this expert in the law. The challenge to go and do likewise. And so today on the way out, you'll notice the tables are set up again in the hallway. There were so many great conversations last week. So many, so many of you signed up for ministry teams and for trips. And I just want to make sure that this is not a message that just lands on your intellect. I don't even want this to be a message primarily that just lands in your heart. I want this to be a message that actually translates through to your hands and your feet. That over Lake, we would take up this challenge from Jesus. That we would be a go and do church. Again, not because we need to earn our salvation. No, no, Jesus has already earned that for us. No, no, this is what we want to do because Jesus says, when you do this, you live. This is the way that you live, that abundance, that fullness, that life abundant with the Lord, both now and forever, this is what it looks like. This is what the followers of Jesus, this is the job description for us. So why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes and let's pray together. Jesus, we do want to say thank you for the way that you've modeled this for us, the way that you have seen us isolated, alone, You've seen us in our woundedness, our brokenness, lying by the side of the road like this man on the road down to Jericho. And you were the one who stopped for us. You were the one who cared for our wounds. You were the one who has compassion on us. You were the one who carries us. You were the one who saves us. And for all these things, Jesus, we just want to say thank you. We want to not only view how you modeled this, we, we not only want to learn your challenge, but Lord Jesus, we want to live it. So would you show us how? Would you have, help us have the eyes to see the needs of the vulnerable all around us? Help us to take action steps even today before we leave this building so that we could connect with your heart, so that we could sign up, we could be a part of a team, we could be a part of a trip that actually puts this into practice. We love you so much, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.